0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cynthia Lyons, Naperville, Illinois. Bohemian, San Francisco, The Elegant Art of Dining by Clarence Edwards. Section number 16. Paste makes waste. In an Italian grocery store we noticed a great variety of pastes in boxes arranged along the counter, and began counting them. The proprietor noticed us, and, with a characteristic shrug of his shoulders, said, "'That is but a few of them. We have not room to show them all.' in response to our inquiry regarding the number of kinds of paste made by Italians, he said there were more than 75. Ordinarily, we think of one spaghetti, or possibly two, including macaroni. If our knowledge goes a little farther, we think also of tagliarini, which is the Italian equivalent of noodles, as it is made with eggs in new york we were much impressed with the stress they laid on the serving of spaghetti and one restaurant went so far as to advertise dinners given under the spaghetti vine it appears that this is the only paste they know anything about after one eats tagliarini or ravioli one feels like paraphrasing the darky and saying go away spaghetti you done lost your taste. Then comes tortellini, which, like ravioli, combines paste with meat and spinach. These may be considered the most prominent of the pastes, the others being variants in the making and cutting, each serving a special purpose in cooking, some being for soups, others for sauces, and others for dressing for meats. It is more than probable that the great variety comes from individual tastes in cutting or rolling. All Italian restaurants serve the paste as a releve rather than as an entree, which it usually follows, preceding the roast in the dinner. As a separate and distinct dish, it can well be made to serve as a full meal, especially when tagliarini is prepared after the following recipe. Tagliarini de beaux Cook one pound of tagliarini in boiling water 25 minutes, then draw off the water. To the tagliarini, add a handful of mushrooms which have been sliced and fried in butter, then add three chicken livers which have been chopped small and fried, one sliced truffle, one red pepper chopped fine, and a little parmesan cheese. Make a brown sauce of one-third beef broth thickened with melted butter and flour and two-thirds tomato sauce, and pour this over the tagliarini. Sprinkle with the Parmesan cheese and serve very hot from a chafing dish. By Oliver, chef of Restaurant de Beaux-Arts, Paris. In San Francisco one finds both the imported and the domestic paste and frequently one hears the assertion that the imported is the better this idea is born of the thought that all things from europe are better than the same made in america In fact, the paste that comes from Italy is neither so good in taste nor is it so clean in the making. We have visited a number of paste factories in San Francisco and have found them all scrupulously clean with the best of materials in the composition of the pastes. One often wonders how the pastes came to be so many and how they received their names. Names of some of them are accidents, as is illustrated by Macaroni. According to an Italian friend who vouches for the fact, it received its name from an expression of pleasure. Macari means fine, excellent, and the superlative is Macaroni. A famous Italian gourmet constantly desired the new dishes to please his taste and one day his chef carried to him something that was unusual. The gourmet tasted it, cried out, Macari! Tasted again, threw out his arms in delight, and cried, Macaroni! What is the name of this wonderful dish? You have named it. It is Macaroni! Tips and Tipping. Tipping is variously designated. Some say it is a nuisance and should be abolished some call it an outrage and ask for legislative interference some say it is an extortion and refuse to pay it some say it is a necessary evil and suffer it the wise ones look at it a little differently possibly it is best explained or excused whichever way you wish to call it by one of gouverneur morris's characters in a recent story who says whenever i go anywhere i find persons in humble situations who smile at me and wish me well i smile back and wish them well it is because at some time or other i have tipped them to me the system has never been an annoyance but a delightful opportunity for the exercise of tact and judgment We look upon tipping as a part of expense to be calculated upon, necessary to ensure good service, not only now but in the future, and it should always be computed in the expense of a trip or a dinner. Tipping, to our minds, is the oil that makes the wheels of life run smoothly. The amount of the tip is always a matter of individual judgment, dependent on the service rendered and the way it is rendered. The good traveler wants to tip properly, neither too little nor too much, thereby getting the best service, for in the last analysis the pleasure of a trip depends upon the service received. American prodigality and asininity is responsible for much of the abuse of tipping. Too many Americans, when they travel, desire to appear important, and the only way they can accomplish this is by buying the subserviency of menials who laugh at them behind their backs. A tip should always depend upon the service rendered. We make it a rule to withhold the tip from a careless or inconsiderate waiter, and always add to the tip a word of commendation when there has been extra good service. The amount of the tip depends first on the service, second on the amount of the bill, and third on the character of the place where you are served. When we order a specially prepared dinner with our suggestions as to its composition and service, we tip the head waiter, the chef, the waiter, and the busboy we have given dinners where the tips amounted to fully half as much as the dinner itself and we felt that this part of the expense brought us the greatest pleasure it is impossible to make a hard and fast rule regarding how much to give a waiter each person must use his or her own judgment if you are in a foreign country you might do as we did on our first trip to paris We wanted to do what was right but not what most americans think is right we were at a hotel where only french were usually guests and in order to do the right thing we took the proprietor into our confidence and explained to him our dilemma we asked him whom to tip and how much to give and he got us out of our difficulty and we found that the tips amounted to about as much for one whole week, as we had been held up for in one day at the Waldorf Astoria. THE MYTHICAL LAND Notwithstanding the fact that Webster gives no recognition in his dictionary to the land of Bohemia or the occupants thereof, the land exists, perhaps not in a material way, but certainly mentally. Some have not the perception to see it. Some know not the language that admits entrance, some pass it by every day without understanding it, yet it as truly exists as any of the lands told of in our childhood fables and fairy stories. The old definition of Bohemian was a vagabond, a wayfarer. Possibly that definition may, to a certain extent, be true of the present-day Bohemian for he is a mental vagabond and a mental wayfarer. In our judgment the word comes from the French bon homme, for surely the Bohemian is a good man. Whatever may be the derivation, the fact remains that not to all is given the perception to understand, nor the eyes to see, and therein lies one of the dangers of writing such a book as this if you read this and then hurry off to a specified restaurant with the expectation of finding the bohemian atmosphere in evidence you are apt to be disappointed for frequently it is necessary to create your own bohemian atmosphere then too all nights are not the same at all restaurants for instance if you desire the best service afforded in any restaurant Do not select Saturday or Sunday night but if you will lay aside your desire for personal comfort in service and wish to study character, then take Saturday or Sunday night for your visit. It is very possible that you will think the restaurant has changed hands between Friday and Saturday. On Saturday and Sunday evening, the mass of San Francisco's great cosmopolitan population holds holiday and the great feature of the holiday is a restaurant dinner, where there is music and glitter and joyous human companionship. At such times, waiters become careless and sometimes familiar. Cooks are rushed to such an extent that they do not give the care to their preparation that they take pride in. On other nights, consoling themselves frequently, with the thought that the Saturday and Sunday night patrons do not know or appreciate the higher form of gastronomic art. Remember also that the world is a looking glass. Smile into it and it smiles back, frown and you get black looks. In Bohemia we sometimes find it well to overlook soiled table, nappery, sanded floor, or untidy appearance. Of course, this is not in the higher class of restaurants, but there are times and places where, when you must remember you are making a study of human interest and not getting a meal, and you must leave your fastidiousness and squeamishness at home. It takes some time to get well within the inner circle of bohemianism, but after you have arrived, you have the password, and all doors are open to you. If our friends think of a new story, they save it up until our next coming and tell us something that has always a bearing on Bohemia. For instance, how few of us know the origin of the menu card. It seems to be a natural thing, yet like all things it had a beginning, and this is the way it began, according to a good friend who told it to us." Frederick the Great was the lover of good eating, and his chef took pride in providing new and rare dishes for his delectation, but it frequently occurred that the great ruler permitted his appetite to overcome his judgment, and he would eat so heartily of all the food first set before him, that when later and more delicious dishes came to the table he was unable to do them justice. To abide this, he ordered his chef to prepare each day a list of what was to be served and to show their rotation during the meal, and in compliance with this order, the first menu card was written. To Frederick the Great is also attributed the naming of the German bread now called pumpernickel. According to one of our Italian friends, the story runs this way, Frederick wished some bread and his chef sent him a loaf that was of unusual color and flavor. It did not please the king, and he was not slow to express his disapproval. He owned a horse named Nicholas, but commonly called Nico, and when the chef appeared before him to receive his censure for sending in distasteful bread, Frederick threw the loaf at his head, exclaiming, Bon poor Nico! From this it received its name, which has been corrupted to Pumpernickel. After the doors are opened to you, you will find not only many new stories, but you will learn of customs unusual and discover their origin dating back to the days whose history remains only in folklore. You will be let into family secrets of the alien quarters and will learn of hopes, aspirations, and desires that will startle you with their strangeness. You will find artists, sculptors, and writers of verse in embryo. And if you remain long enough in the atmosphere, you may see, as we have, some of these embryonic thinkers achieve fame that becomes nationwide. It is said of the islands of the South Seas, that when one eats of certain fruit, it creates such a longing that the mind is never content until another visit is made. San Francisco's Bohemia lays no claim to persuasive fruit, but it is true that when one breathes in the atmosphere of this mythical world, it leaves an unrest that is only appeased a return to where the whispering winds tell of enchanted land, where you get the best there is to eat, served in a manner that enhances its flavor and establishes it forever in your memory. End of section 16